Good morning. Uh, Please join me in reading scripture, if you would. We're going to be in Colossians 3 this morning. We'll be in verse 22. That's page 984, if you use the Pew Bible in front of you. I think it'll be very helpful if you follow along today. Um, It's always good to check the scripture and to read it for yourselves. So we'll be in Colossians 3.22, if you would stand, and we'll read that. We're going to go through verse, or chapter 4, verse 1. The scripture says, Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as men-pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Please contemplate these words. You may be seated. We talked last week about the fullness of Christ and how that word fullness is used a lot in this book by Paul and how the fullness of Christ is in creation, which we would know. The fullness of God is in Christ, which we know. Uh, We see that from that great hymn in chapter 1. And then we try to transition to say the fullness of Christ is now in us, and so it makes a difference on how we live. And so this week we're thinking specifically, last week we talked about the marriage relationships, the family relationships, and this week we're talking about work. But when I come to this passage, you you may be like me or you may not be, but when I I just first read chapter 3, verse 22, slaves obey your masters in everything, I mean, it's disturbing. My immediate reaction is, why does Paul say this? I mean, it sends up all kinds of red flags for me, and it seems like when you just read it, it seems like maybe the Bible's condoning slavery and not condemning slavery. I mean, if you just read that passage, you would maybe uh, come to that conclusion. And so when I read a passage like this, that's my dominating question. I, I mean, I know there's some other words there, but I, I can't get to the other words until I sort of get this question answered because it's so difficult and so big in my mind. And I just ask myself when I'm reading through a scripture like this, I ask myself, well, why didn't Paul just say slavery is a great evil and should be abolished? You know, you got husbands and wives, you got parents and children. Now you have this other dynamic in the Roman Empire, and it's slaves and masters. And hey, we just shouldn't have slavery. And then move on. And so I want to take some time to try to address that question. And then I want to examine how Paul intends the gospel to affect our work. And we'll see it in this way, the, the manner and the motive, the manner of our work and the motive for our work. Whether you find yourself on the, the employed side or the employer side, whether you find yourself on the, the worker side or the boss side, uh, whichever way, there's a manner in which you should work and then there's a motive in which you should work. And we'll see those two. But let's begin with this issue of slavery in the Bible. And let me just make three comments about this to begin with. 
First, when Paul uses this word slaves, what he has in his mind is something, something totally different than what you and I have in our minds. We're 21st century Americans. We know the history of America. We live on this side of the African slave trade. And so when somebody says slavery, probably for most of us, that's sort of the first image, maybe the, the dominating image that we have in our mind. And that's not at all what Paul has in his mind. He would never condone that kind of slavery. In fact, in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it, it, it says something. It says it specifically condemns this form of slavery. Exodus 21, anyone who kidnaps another and sells him or still has him when he is caught, he must be put to death. It's pretty clear in terms of how God feels about that. And then in First Timothy, Paul says this. He's making a list of things that are contrary to God's law. Those who kill their fathers and mothers, murderers, adulterers, perverts, and slave traders. And so clearly the Bible is condemning the kind of slavery that we have in our mind. As slavery, as Paul speaks of it in the New Testament, isn't race-based. It wasn't kidnapping and selling people. Uh, many of the slaves in the New Testament times were captives of war, or they were people who volunteered in some sense to become slaves to a master who they trusted would take care of them, both uh, physically, uh, but also protect them from some kind of enemy. And then some of them were sold, some people had sold themselves into slavery in order to pay off a debt. They couldn't pay off a debt. And so they gave themselves to this person for a year or three or five, whatever the number is. And that worked off their debt in that sense. In all cases, slavery in the New Testament was, there was an understood end. It was going to come to an end in two years or five years or seven years. Some number you knew that was, going to come to an end. So I'm not trying to romanticize slavery. I'm not trying to say, why well, wouldn't you like to be back in the New Testament and be a slave? That's not what I'm trying to say. What I am trying to say is the way Paul thinks about it and address it is fundamentally different than the way we think about it and we might address it. In fact, we know from 1 Corinthians 7:12, Paul tells slaves that if they can, they should try to gain their freedom. So it's better to be free than to be a slave. Second thing I want to say here is most historians estimate that the, the Roman Empire's population was made up of 80 to 90 percent slaves. So think about that. Think about living in an empire, thinking about living in a country, and eight or nine out of every ten people is in some kind of slavery, some kind of slave-master relationship. We can assume Paul writes this letter to the, to the people at Colossae and the people of Colossae, maybe there's 50 people in this home church. Whatever the number is, we would assume the ratio would probably work out that 40 people in this, in this congregation would be slaves and the other 10% would either be free and or masters. We know of one such sort of slave master relationship in the book of Colossae because you know in this tiny little book, it's just one page. If you ever want to feel good about your Bible reading plan, just turn to the book of Philemon. And you can say, well, I read a whole book in one sitting because it's just one page. And it's a little tiny letter addressed by Paul to a guy named Philemon. And Philemon is probably one of the church leaders in Colossae. 
And he had a slave named Onesimus. And Onesimus had run away. And when Onesimus had run away, he ran into the Apostle Paul. Imagine that. So then he meets the Apostle Paul. He meets Christ. And now Paul says, hey, you've got to go back to Philemon. And I want to send a letter back with you because I know who Philemon is. And I want to make sure he understands what kind of relationship I want you all to have together. So that's that book. And so we know inside the contest, just imagine you're in this little home. There's 40 or 50 people in this home. And you know, okay, this guy ran away. This guy's his master. What's going to happen? If you get in a larger church, you can't see that. But in a home church, you would know. Whoever read this letter would stand up and he could see the slaves. He could see the masters. He could see the the wheels turning on how we're supposed to treat each other. Anyway, when Paul addresses the church about this slave-master relationship, it doesn't mean he's approving of it. It's more like he's giving this practical help. Hey, hey, I know tomorrow, Monday morning, you're going to go out and go to work. It's very practical. And, and whether I like the conditions or not, most of you all are in all these conditions. So that just how do you live in this context? And so I want to, what I want to say in the second point is giving instructions on how to practically live within the reality of the culture is not the same as approving the culture. Does that make sense? Just because Paul is giving practical reality of how you live inside the culture, it doesn't mean he's condoning what's actually taking place. Third, Paul's instructions actually begin to sow the seeds of the destruction of the institution of slavery. And I'll point that out. So Paul gives this advice, and actually he begins to sow the seeds in the culture, beginning with the church, that begins to to destruct the institution of slavery. Here's a comment uh, from one of the commentaries I read. Paul did not attack the institution. Rather, he spread principles which would eventually work its destruction. Paul's purpose in this passage isn't a cultural revolution, but a personal revolution. The people in this new church were no longer primarily under the Roman Empire, but they were under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And what Paul teaches sows the seeds for cultural change. So you might say that Paul uh, was working from the inside out. He's not trying to take on the entire uh, Roman Empire. He's trying to take on the, the, the empire of the church and saying if these people can live differently and then they can begin to spread out through the Roman Empire. So that's how Paul is thinking about it. Let me just point out three places where you see these seeds. Chapter 3, verse 11, a verse that we didn't read. But let's just look at this. This is a very explosive verse here. See that first word here, meaning in here, in the church, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is in all and we are all one in Christ. So inside this church, we're going to be different than outside in the culture. In here, in this church, 80% slaves, 20% owners. In this church, some percentage of Jews, some percentage of Greeks, these, these two hostile uh, ethnic groups. Uh, some percentage of barbarians who listen to country music. Some percentage of upper crust people who love NPR. 
Some percentage of Carolina, some percentage of Duke. One person who went to Furman. I mean, you, you see, you've got this whole mixed up group and he understands Boy, outside in the culture, you have all kinds of tensions and all kinds of factions and all kinds of history. But see, now you're coming underneath a a totally different history. And when you get inside the church, then you know that everybody's on the same level playing field with Christ. Everybody has the same need. And so Paul, in this very explosive verse, is beginning to sow the seeds of cultural change. Chapter 3, verse 25, there is no partiality. Some translations put it this, God is not a respecter of persons. In the Greek, it literally means God doesn't take your face into account. So when God looks at you, he doesn't take your face into account. He doesn't take your skin color into account. He doesn't take your ethnicity into account. He doesn't take any outward appearance into account. What he takes into account is the sincerity of your heart. So he's looking from the inside out rather than the culture who's always looking from the outside in. So this was another disruptive seed. And third, notice in verse 24, Paul's lifting up the slaves by saying, hey, you have an inheritance. See, you're not under just just your old earthly master. You're underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ. And as a slave on this earth, you don't have an inheritance. But as a slave for Christ, you have an incredible inheritance. We talked about this in 1 Peter. It's, it's, It's stored up in heaven for you. It's protected by God himself. Nobody can touch it. It's going to be beyond what you could possibly imagine. And so he's telling the slaves, you have an inheritance. It's, imagine just being a slave and hearing that in that context. Wow, I have an inheritance. And then he looks and turns to the masters and say, chapter 4, verse 1, and masters, you have a master. See, he's reducing, he's reorienting this relationship. Do the masters have an inheritance? Well, sure, they do. But he's trying to help the masters understand, hey, don't think too highly of yourselves. Don't think you're the, the, the main thing. The main thing is Christ. And you know as a master, one day you're going to face your master. So Paul is teaching something that's radically reorienting about these relationships. And he's, as he's doing so, he's planting these seeds that are going to grow throughout the Roman Empire. We know that the church really, it took about 300 years to really just disrupt the whole Roman Empire institution. So I want to make sure that that took some time, but I want to make sure you got that in your mind, because if you're like me and you read this passage, you just can't quite get past that opening statement. And so let's look now at the manner and motive for the worker and the boss. I think that's the, the nearest relationship that we can make to this master and slave relationship. First, the manner for the worker. Notice the two phrases Paul uses here for the worker. Not by way of eye service, not by way of people pleasing. So you want to think about your manner as a worker. It's not going to be by eye service. It's not going to be a way of people pleasing. In other words, you don't just work hard when the boss is looking at you in order to gain some kind of favor. You don't allow your your work report to be, well, Paul Phillips works well under constant supervision. That's not what you want your boss to have to say about you. I don't know if um, 
probably everyone here understands this dynamic. This isn't something that you have to think culturally about. You've had uh, your first job. Maybe it was kind of a low-end job. I had several of those. And you just get these jobs, and there's summer jobs, or it's my first job. And, you know, you, maybe you're excited for a little while, but then it quickly just becomes routine. And then you just, your energy just begins to drop. And so when the boss sitting around, you know, we're just taking an extra 15 minutes. It's not a big deal. I'm looking for a way to sit down, not to produce. When the boss comes in, okay, I'm ready. I'm working hard. I want to make sure he notices me. And that same dynamic that we all know, Paul knows, is happening in his culture. I don't know if you, uh, a few of you watch the NCAA basketball tournament. And because it's so popular, it's now you can watch it on the Internet. And the games start Thursday at noon. And so here you are. You're a worker. You've got your bracket filled out. You want to find out if your team's going to win or lose. And it's noon on a Thursday. And it's also noon on a Friday. And it's also the next week, noon on a Thursday. So they've got it on the screen. And you can watch it while you're at work. And then up in the top corner, you know what they have? They have the boss button. So if the boss comes in, you hit the boss button and a bunch of charts come up on your screen. So he walks by and goes, wow, look at Paul. He's filling out all these charts. It's incredible. And it's just a funny little thing. But I wonder how many of us have the boss button. When the boss comes up, we hit this button and we just go into a new gear because the boss is in. When I worked uh, for the Atlanta Braves, Ted Turner was, was, is the owner of the Atlanta Braves. And we would be in the press box and it would be sort of a normal sort of routine game and early on i walked in one time to the press box because that's where i was working and i noticed it's something different about people's energy in here so i meandered over i got my sandwich i went to the type typewriter if you can believe this typewriter i'm starting to, and i noticed everybody's just looks like they're really energetic and i'm looking around and i go oh ted turner's here he just walked in so so they all hit the boss button and Paul's trying to help these slaves. You can imagine if you're a slave how easy it would be just to say, I'm not going to work very hard for this guy. And Paul's trying to totally reorient that and say, don't work in that manner. Instead, he gives you the motive and he complete, completely reorients the way you are to think about work. It's not that you're working for men, but, you're, but you've got to realize you're really working for the Lord, the, the real boss. He's always looking. He always sees what you're doing. He always examines the the way in which you work, even if the boss isn't there. And so your work, no matter what it is, matters to God. Let me say that again. Your work, no matter what it is, matters to God. See, and sometimes we get ourselves thinking, well, there's sort of these menial tasks and then there's, there's meaningful tasks. But, all, but God's saying, hey, all your work, it all matters to God. Now, there's several implications. And let me just mention two of this. First, I want you to take your bulletin because there's a couple of quotes on here I want to refer to. Since Paul is saying that work is meaningful, then there's no division between the sacred and secular work. Since Paul is saying all work is meaningful, then there's no division between sacred work 
and secular work. Like, oh, you're in the ministry, so you do sort of sacred stuff. But, man, I, I do 40 or 50 or 60 hours a week over here, and I'm doing a secular job. Paul's trying to say there's no division, there's no boundary between those two uh, fields of service. Instead, every position, no matter how menial our culture may see it, is underneath the lordship of Christ. Now, if you notice these, uh, bullet, these quotes in your bulletin, the tip of the spear for the Protestant Reformation, as most of us would know, is a guy named Martin Luther. So there are lots of people, lots of reformers, but sort of the tip of the spear, the person who's mostly associated with the beginning of the Protestant Reformation is Martin Luther. And if you remember much about the Reformation and you think, well, what was that about? Most people would say it was about justification by faith. So instead of it being by works, it's by grace. And Martin Luther came in with this sort of thunderbolt saying justification by faith alone. By grace, not by works. And certainly that was the main thrust. But what's gotten lost in history is one another main thrust and equally as revolutionary is what Martin Luther picked up from the New Testament is the priesthood of all believers. See, in Martin Luther's time, he was a monk and there was a secular sort of high up view of the of the sacred ministry people. And then everybody else, they were just sort of like peons. And Martin Luther's reading the New Testament so saying, no, there's a priesthood now of all believers. And so he came in with this, this uh, idea that there's no difference between the secular and sacred. And you see the quote there, the milkmaid has as honorable a calling as the priest and the preacher. Now, in that day, that would just have exploded the minds of the people. You mean me milking a cow is as valuable as, as being a priest or a preacher? Yes, it does. In God's economy, every job matters. Unfortunately, the church is slow in picking this up. And you see it in Dorothy Sayers. She was an English or British writer in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And here's the quote again on your bulletin. And nothing has the church so lost her hold on reality as her failure to understand and respect the secular vocation. The church has allowed work and religion to become separate departments and is astonished to find out, as a result, the secular work of the world has turned to purely selfish and destructive ends. And the greater part of the world's intelligent workers have become irreligious or at least uninterested in religion. But is it astonishing? How can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of his life? And I wonder if you've ever felt that way. Like you come in and you go, well, that's neat, but, you know, it just doesn't have any impact on my life. It's great right here, but when I go out and I live nine-tenths of my life, Christianity just doesn't impact that. And Paul couldn't be any different. He spent the first two chapters trying to help you understand the majesty of God And then the next two chapters, he's saying how that majesty manifests itself out in your life. So there's no distinction. There's no there's no division between you're taking that and then you're passing it through into how you live as a dad, how you live as a father, how you live as a mother, how you live as a child, how you live as a parent, how you live as a worker, how you live as a boss. It's it's affecting all manner of life. Second implication here is since all work is sacred makes a difference on how you treat other people. 
See if it, the preacher, the professional, the parking lot attendant. All work is sacred. Then it's going to affect how you as a Christian intersect with that person. You're going to treat them differently. You're going to look down at some group. Many of you, if you're sports fans, you saw this viral video of this ESPN reporter who was very unhappy about her car, I think, being towed. So they have the security camera where you pay, and she talks about this woman's weight, her education, and her lack of teeth. Hey, I'm on television, and this is what you're like. You see, if we do that as the church, such a terrible misrepresentation of who God is in our lives. So it doesn't matter if you're a professional or you're a parking lot attendant. If all work has value, then you're intersecting with some holy calling, no matter how small the task may seem to you. So my question for us as as workers, as consumers, is is our theology affecting our view of work? Do, do, do we do we operate according to a boss button? Do we treat people differently because of the kinds of jobs that they have? Second, let's uh, look at the manner and motive for the owner. Chapter four, verse one. You're supposed to treat these people, these slaves, your workers, justly and fairly. And the word fairly sometimes is, is translated in the Greek equally. And so I'm just imagining somebody's gotten this letter. Onesimus has delivered the letter. Whoever the leader is of the church, he's reading this letter sort of as a, as a sermon Sunday gathering. And they come to this point and says, okay, if you're a master, so this is 20, 10, 20 percent of the people, you've got to treat everybody else that's a slave of yours, a worker, justly and fairly, or you've got to treat them equally. And I'm just guessing this kind of conversation happened at lunch afterwards. Okay, I'm an owner and I'm supposed to treat my workers equally. Does that mean I'm supposed to treat them all the same? So they're all equal to me. I mean, in other words, I don't treat, you know, John any different than I treat Tom. And I don't think that's what Paul's saying. I think he's saying you have to treat them equally to yourself. See, you're equal with them. And this would have just been mind-blowing in the, in the minds of the people at Colossae. What do you mean they're equal to me? They're not equal to me. But see, in Christ, we're all one. There's no division. And so Paul's saying, uh, really repeating what Jesus says in Matthew 7, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I mean, it's just the golden rule, the ethic of the workplace. So if you ever get confused in your workplace as a worker or as a boss, what should I do in this particular situation with this person? Because most of the problems in work are, are relationally driven. They're not tough projects. They're usually tough people. And so how should I deal with this person? Best ethic is just how would I want someone to deal with me? And then let me try that first. The motive, the motive, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let me close with this point. When Paul makes this point, I'm just thinking here. 
My guess is he's saying, okay, you're a master, so you're sort of up, and you have slaves, you have workers. And what I'm trying to help you, this is Paul speaking to the masters, I'm trying to help you get down on the same floor. Because, because you have a master in heaven. You're, it, it, however high up you may seem, there's still someone higher up. So I want to make sure, masters, you understand you have a master, and one day you'll stand before him, and you'll have to give an account to how you treated the people that worked underneath you. And I think that's probably what he's saying for sure, but I think additionally, he's saying, I want you to look at your master. How he's worked for you. And then I want you to work that way for the people that you're leading. See, you have a master, and here he is. And he's worked incredibly for you. Now you go, and you be the same kind of master that I am for you. And so we have a master that doesn't shout down commands. He comes down. We don't have a, a master that, uh, he, our master comes down not to be served, but to serve. The real master didn't serve his friends. He came to serve his enemies. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this while what? We were yet sinners. See, he's not just serving his friends. He's not just serving consumers. He's serving his enemies. So if, if it's difficult for you. Tomorrow, Monday, you get up and you think, it's just going to be hard for me to go to work because of my boss or because of the people I employ. Let's, Let's just remember how Christ has served you. And then go and serve. It's a great morning to have communion. Because we remember the sacrifice Christ made for us. And, of course, we can't make that sacrifice for somebody else, but we can display that sacrifice for other people. And it happens in the family, and it happens in the workplace. Let's pray together. Lord, we come today in this very practical sermon. We can imagine this uh, first century church just hearing this information and then having to go out and live differently. And so I pray that that happens with the believers here that are, working underneath someone or especially those who are in positions of um, being the boss or being the owner, that they would treat uh, their employees like you have treated them. And that is that even though you were going to be betrayed, you, you took the cup and you said, this is my blood. You took the bread and said, this is my body. I'm, I'm here to to serve, not to be served, and to give my life as a ransom for many. Bless your people as they come forward. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.